we're going through the book of Deuteronomy right now, and we're going to turn to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. Just three verses today as we look at the Word of God. And this is in your bulletin. You can also look in your actual Bibles if you bring those, your phones. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. Read with me. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. This is the word of God. A few days ago, um, a theater in, U- in the Ukrainian town of Mariupol was bombed by the Russian army. And if you were like me, you're probably following the news. Uh, you-, you saw the images, you heard the news, you heard that there were um, a thousand plus civilians in this building. And you probably felt a deep sense of outrage and you felt a deep longing, not just for the war to end, but for those who are responsible for the murder of these civilians to be held accountable and to be punished you felt something in you that reacted strongly to this and no doubt there have been many other times in your life that you've felt anger at the injustices that you've witnessed or heard about racism sexism abuse the oppression of entire groups of people because they belong to a certain social class or an ethnic group um you have perhaps even been the victim of injustice yourself. And why do we react the way we do when these things happen? And I think it's because of this. Because in every one of us is an innate sense of right and wrong. We intuitively know that certain things shouldn't happen. And the closer they are to our own experience and the more severe the issue, the more we feel like something needs to be done, that this wrong needs to be made right. That's why we react the way we do. And why do we react the way we do? It's because God does. Whether or not we believe in a God, we're all at least tethered to an objective standard of morality. We all have in us a sense of right and wrong. There are certain things you can say objectively are right. And there are certain things you can say objectively are wrong. This is our sense of justice. And my objective in the next few moments is to show us that our sense of justice is not only given to us by God, but that they point us to God and that today's text points us to a uniquely Christian understanding of justice. So, like I mentioned earlier, we're going through the book of Deuteronomy. And today we look at one of the passages that covers the governance of the Israelites. Um, You might remember that the book of Deuteronomy is a collection of speeches and sermons that Moses gives to the people of God as they're on the outskirts of the promised land. This land that God has promised to them, that God is going to give to them. And we're looking at three verses this morning. And these are the instructions to the Israelites about the governance of the nation of Israel. And this is the beginning of a longer section on justice that Pastor Michael and I will preach through in the next few weeks. And if we're just to give a cursory glance at the passage, the instructions that we see here in these verses, they seem very simple. They seem perhaps even very obvious. We're told that God's people are told to appoint officials 
we have officials here in California. We have officials as American citizens. They're told to establish an impartial judicial system. We have this, um, or at least we aim to have this in the United States. They're told not to accept bribes. And we know that this is not something that should happen in our own systems. Now, to understand the significance of these verses, we need to know the ways in which these instructions aren't as obvious to the original hearers as we think they were. This passage is about justice. The sermon title is very simple. It's just justice. This passage is about justice, but it's ultimately about God. And I want us to see the glory and the goodness of God as we dig into the text. So just two points this morning um, to get there. Number one, justice in the land. And number two, justice for God. Justice for God. So the first point, justice in the land. So the Israelites, they hear the words of Moses and they're anticipating their entrance into the promised land. Now, you might remember that as the, the history of the Israelites, they wandered the wilderness for 40 years with no official channels of governance yet. The settlement into a land would provide them a stability and it would allow them to live as people with a system that would allow them to function as a society. And so Moses, he gives them these instructions. Very straightforward, as I mentioned just a moment ago. Um, this is what needs to be done. This is how things need to be set up. Um, in every group of people, there are opportunities for things to go awry. People will be wronged. They'll be mistreated. In our church of 100 plus people, 100 plus members, people have been hurt and wronged. In families of six or of three, people have been hurt and wronged. In relationships, relationships of just two people, there is hurt. And the two people will inevitably harm each other and hurt each other. And so it is with any group. And so it is with any nation. That when people interact, there will be tension. There will be conflict. There will be hurt. And there, there needs to be a way to address these things. So in the instructions in these three verses... The Israelites are told this, that justice is to be practiced. Very simply, justice is making the right, making right the things that have been made wrong, that have been wronged. Um, the people of Israel are to be char- are charged to figure out who will be judges and officers based on their tribes. So you might remember that there are 12 tribes in Israel. There are to be characteristics of these judges, judges and officers. They're to have certain qualities to them. They had to carry out their work faithfully and with righteousness, with a moral goodness, one that abides by the laws established by God. They're to be vigilant to not allow the process of justice to be perverted. As the passage goes on, it tells us the two ways in which justice can be perverted, internally and externally. Internally, look at verse 19, they're not to show partiality. Where does partiality come from? Um, In every one of us, we have prejudices and preferences and biases and unspoken motivations that we all carry. We all have these things, no matter how objective we try to be. We are all prejudiced to some extent. And this passage acknowledges that in us, there is a partiality. There are certain ways in which we want things to go. And we may be tempted to push things a certain way, even though it is not objectively right. And then externally... They're not to accept bribes, these judges and officers. It acknowledges the presence of people who may want to influence 
these judgments by making a deal with them, by paying them off, or by promising the judge something in exchange for a judgment that would suit those who are engaging in this bribery. So these are the very simple instructions given to the Israelites. And this is spoken not just to the future governors, they're not just spoken to uh, leaders of the tribes, but to everyone. Look at verses 18 and 20. There are references to the land that God is giving to the people. Who is God giving the land to? To everyone, not just to the leaders. And therefore the men and women who would step foot into the promised land, this command, these instructions are for them as well. When Moses gives these instructions to the people, they're, given, they're told that they're, they're to be a nation of laws, of order and justice. And in order to be that, every Israelite had to take responsibility for the justice that was to be practiced in the nation. And it didn't mean that uh, if you were an average citizen, uh, average uh, Israelite, it didn't mean that you were responsible for enacting every law or initiative, or that you were responsible for executing justice or carrying out judgments on those who did wrong. But it meant that justice, or if you look at other translations of this passage, it says righteousness, that justice or righteousness, this was to be a value for every person in Israel. Now look at verse 20 more closely. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is not just a political statement. It's not just instructions for how things are to be structured. Commentators, they point out that the structure of Moses' words here, there is a repetition of the word justice or righteousness that's intentional. It's oratorial. Moses is not speaking as a government official here. He's speaking as a preacher, as someone who's appointed by God to give the words of God to the people of God so that they would live for the glory of God. This is a very theological statement that Moses is giving. And therefore, justice is not a political issue. This is a theological issue. Um, I'm going to take a short detour um, to talk about something that may not seem very, uh, may not seem connected to justice. But I'm going to take a short detour and talk about horror films, horror films, scary movies. And I'm doing so because what I'm doing, what I'm going to say about the horror genre might help us understand something about the topic of justice. So, I was reading an article about horror films a while back, and the author made a point that I never considered. Why are horror films, why are scary movies so appealing? The premise of every horror movie is that people are in danger. And why does the viewer care that people are in danger? The viewer cares because life is valuable. Even if you don't know the characters in the movie, you care about the people in the movie because we intuitively know that people have worth and value. Otherwise, scary movies would be no more compelling than a a cooking show on cable television. Because there's not much difference between cutting into a person and cutting into a potato if a human being does not have value and worth. Um, One of the well-known filmmakers in the horror film industry is actually a Christian. His name is Scott Derrickson. Um, He's based in Southern California. 
He actually directed the first uh, Doctor Strange movie a few years ago. So if you uh, enjoy the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you are a, uh, a someone who's benefited from his work, Scott Derrickson. And before he directed Doctor Strange, he directed a, a, a number of well-known horror films. Um, the Exorcism of Emily Rose, Sinister. Um, this was directed by a believer. And in this article that I read, he gave some insight into how horror films can be used to communicate something vital about some, some vital themes in life. Um, the meaning of suffering, the fallenness of man, the presence of evil, the need for hope, the importance of morality. This is why we're drawn to horror films, or some people might be drawn to horror films, because it's not just about being scared for the sake of being scared. There's something underneath this, something about the value and dignity of human beings. And the significance of horror movies and the significance of justice is very similar. Both are based on the premise that life is precious, that people matter. People matter. And in the theological realm, the concept, this is the concept of Imago Dei. This is Latin for the image of God. Imago, image, Dei, God. People matter because they're created by God and they're made in His image. Every person has value. Every person has dignity and worth because they reflect who God is. Now, the next time you see someone and view them as ugly or as a nuisance or as an enemy, step back and remember that they are made in the image, that they bear the image of the infinite God. And if you can't love them or if you can't respect them for what, for what they have or haven't done, then at least try to love them and respect them because by doing so, you're loving and respecting their creator. People matter because they're made in the image of God. And this is where the real meat of today's passage lies. That underneath the call for judges and officers among the tribes of Israel, there is a worth and dignity of every person who God has spoken into existence. Those who are wronged matter. Justice for them matters. Justice matters because people matter. And people matter because God matters. And therefore, justice is about God. This passage in Deuteronomy is about God. To protect and stand up for someone who has been wronged is an act of worship. Because when you engage in the process of justice, you're saying something about what God is worth when you carry out justice. What is God worth? What is God worth? Because that determines the extent of your worship, how you answer that question. Is God worth the inconveniences and disruptions and the sometimes heavy costs of ensuring and carrying out justice? Justice is an act of worship, if you understand it correctly. There are countless examples of believers who understood this and who carried out justice, not for the sake of people ultimately, but for the sake of God's honor. Uh, I want to share with you just one. This is uh, about slavery in the West. Uh, there's a summary of this issue by the historian Rodney Stark, and I know that we've mentioned him several times over the course of our life at IGC. And um, I'm going to retread some of this ground. This is what Rodney Stark writes. 
Although it has been fashionable to deny it, anti-slavery doctrines began to appear in Christian theology soon after the decline of Rome and were accompanied by the eventual disappearance of slavery in all but the fringes of Christian Europe. When Europeans subsequently instituted slavery in the New World, they did so over strenuous papal opposition, a fact that was conveniently lost from history until recently. Finally, the abolition of New World slavery was initiated and achieved by Christian activists. And Ronnie Stark goes on to share the story of abolitionists in 19th century Britain. The abolitionist movement was led by Christians. And if you want to learn more about this, I uh, actually entertain or I I, uh, recommend watching a film uh, entitled Amazing Grace. This is a movie that came out in 2006. And it's centered around the character of William Wilberforce, a real person, a former... uh, someone who worked in the British Parliament, and he devoted his life to ending slavery, and he led the abolitionist movement in Britain, and he was a very devout believer. And these abolitionists, during this time, they didn't push to end chattel slavery because of some general understanding of human rights, but because they understood that slavery offended God. There was a very God-centered understanding underneath their work. And the big problem when they were when they were caring about their work, the big problem they had was an economic one. There was a lot of money to be made in the slave trade, and many, many people in the West, including those in the church, defended the practice of slavery because of how it, it affected their wallets, how it affected the economy of the nation. And as the abolitionists made their case, those in the trade and those who had a pulse on the economy, they warned that a ban on slavery would have devastating consequences to the economy. The price of goods and materials would skyrocket. And yet these abolitionists, they continued to fight against slavery because they believed that the image bearers of God were worth more than whatever money was going to be lost by putting an end to slavery. And Rodney Stark, he looks at this issue and he points out the question that the historians have been asking ever since. Why were the abolitionists so willing to give up so much to put an end to slavery? It didn't make sense from a political standpoint to put an end to slavery. Because historians, they they believe that all political behavior is self-interested that those who engage in it want to benefit somehow from it. But none of the the abolitionists stood to profit from the end of the slave trade. And in fact, many of the abolitionists, almost all of them, all of them actually, their, their involvement in the movement cost them dearly, not just financially, but socially, politically. So why did they do it? The answer is at the heart of today's passage. The abolitionists sacrificed so much because their Christian faith taught them that the slaves were precious and valued not because of how much money they could earn their owners. They were precious and valued and loved because God created them and they bore His image. So this is justice. It's making right the wrongs because God matters. It's recognizing the humanity of all people and honoring them not according to their social status or their performance, but honoring them because God honors them. 
And God honors people because they reflect his glory. God cares about justice because God cares about his own glory. One of the great promises that we as Jesus followers cling to is the promise that one day God will make all things right. The righteous will be rewarded and honored. The evildoers will be shamed and punished. Every evil act will be repaid. Every wrong will be undone. Everything broken will be made new. And when God commands us to be just and righteous, he's inviting us to take part in what he's doing in the world now. God is doing a work in the world by making things right. He's inviting us into what he's doing. And he's calling us to look forward to the ultimate day of judgment. So Moses, he has this understanding in mind. He tells the Israelites, practice justice. Take part in pointing out wrongs. Pointing out wrongs. Speaking on behalf of those who have been mistreated. Advocating for those who are unable to stand up for themselves. Enable those who are involved in the day-to-day dealings of justice to do their job. Create a culture of justice and righteousness. By valuing justice and righteousness yourself. And do it because God is worth it. One of the primary themes of the book of Deuteronomy is that of covenants. There are several themes that run throughout the book of Deuteronomy. One of the biggest ones is covenants. And that is that God made a covenant with his people. God is committed to their welfare. So much so that he swears to be true to his commitment to them. He swears to the Israelites, I will be true to you. And as I mentioned earlier, we see reference to this when Moses mentions the land that God is giving to the Israelites. And there's a mention of bribery here that seems, um, seems kind of shoehorned into the passage. Why make such a big deal out of it in these three verses? On the one hand, it's because you can't be fair and just if you're willing to compromise your standards by allowing someone to buy you off. But I think bribery also points to this theme of covenant in Deuteronomy. And this leads us to our second point. I'll mention, I'll try to show you why. Our second point, justice for God. Look at verse 20 again in the passage. Justice and justice only shall you follow. It doesn't say justice and justice only shall you enforce. It doesn't say justice and only justice shall you create. It says justice and justice alone will you follow. What does it mean to follow? It means that someone else is leading the way. That something else should be ahead of you. And you should be looking at that and going wherever this goes. So what does it mean to follow justice? It means to obey God in the context of the covenant relationship. Because justice is rooted in the character of God. God is just. God establishes the standards of justice. Listen to just a couple verses that talk about this. Isaiah 5 verse 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And then later in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4. The rock whose work is perfect... For all his ways are justice. All of God's ways are justice. 
a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. To follow justice means to look at God for the standards of justice. To carry out justice not ultimately for the sake of a safe and functional society, although if you do those things, society will be safer, society will be better off. But the ultimate reason is we carry out justice is for the honor of God. Justice, justice is not ultimately for the flourishing of people and societies, but ultimately for God to be worshipped by His people. Because when you carry out justice, when you are yourself care about justice, you're saying something about the value and worth of God. By loving people, by respecting people, you are loving and respecting God. So this passage is about justice for the people of Israel. It's about the people it's about justice for people in general, but it's ultimately about justice for God. We hear a lot about justice for the oppressed, justice for the unborn, justice for the immigrant, justice for the disenfranchised. And those things are all well and good and if you advocate for those things, keep doing it because you should. But here's a question for us. When was the last time you heard someone complain about God not getting the justice that he deserves? When was the last time you heard someone ask you, is God being treated fairly? Because this question is way more important than justice for you and me. Because who has been most offended in all of history... Who has been most offended in all of history? I'll submit to you that God is the most offended being in all of history. Because over the course of history, the tens of billions of people that have existed, every single day, they have offended God by omitting Him from their lives, by not giving thanks to Him, Romans 1, by not submitting to Him, by not honoring Him, by not thinking of Him as they live their lives, by not making Him the center of their lives, even though He is the one that gave life to them. God is the one who has been most offended. And do we care about justice and fairness for God Himself? We are the ones that offended God. And how does bribery fit into this? Bribery is trying to pay someone off to earn a certain, or to, to get some type of result. Bribery is going behind the scenes and saying, I know that the judgment you otherwise might make might be good and fair, but let me pay you off so that I can get my way. And this is the thinking of religion, because we all are very religious people. Whether or not we attend church, whether or not we believe even in a uh, the God of the Bible, because we try to make deals with God. We have offended God and we've said, God, let me do this so that I can get your favor. God, I know that I've offended you, but let me live a certain way. Let me say a certain thing. Let me give a certain amount so that I will have your ear, so that I will have your favor. There is a type of bribery in all of us. And this is a big problem. 
because we cannot pay off God. We cannot make right the wrongs that we have done before God. We can't. So what is the answer? The answer is in 1 Peter 3.18. It's not in your bulletin, but let me read it to you. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, just and righteous, suffered on the cross for you, just, unjust, and unrighteous. And this is the hope in this passage is that God has made a covenant to his people. And the covenant is not that God is not that God would enable his people to be morally pure and good, although ultimately he will do, the, do this. But God's covenant to his people is that he will love them, that his heart is set on them, despite their sinfulness, despite their rebellion, despite their offenses before him. Because one day there would be a man who would take the place of these unjust people, And on the cross, he would pay the price. He would take on the identity of the unjust and the unrighteous. That the wrath of God would be poured out on him. And if you trust him, you will be viewed as just and righteous. This is the good news of the gospel. Not that we will one day have a completely just society. Although in the new heavens and new earth, that will be true. The gospel addresses what is wrong, not just with the world, but the gospel addresses what is wrong inside you. The cross is where we can fully understand the justice of God. Because at the cross, this is where God shows his mercy. God is merciful to all of us. He says, you do not have to pay the penalty for your offenses Because Jesus Christ has done that. And now we're covered with mercy. We're covered with mercy. Did you know that God loves you so much? That God wants you to be part of his people. That God wants to lavish his love upon you. That God wants to care for you. That God does not want you to languish. He does not not want you to be miserable. God cares for you. And we know that. Because Jesus died on the cross. The just for the unjust. There's a song that we sing sometimes at this church. It's a hymn called Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. And I'll close off my time with this verse. Why do we love God? Why do we sing? Why do we wonder at who He is? Let us love and sing and wonder. Join and point to mercy's store. When through grace our, our trust in Christ is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. This is a summary of 1 Peter 3.18. Justice is about the worship of God ultimately. And if you understand what God has done in his justice... If you understand what God has done in his love and how he has allowed justice and mercy to kiss at the cross, you can worship God. 
not because you yourself are good and just, but because he is. Will you pray with me? Father, we um, love and sing and wonder at the fact that you have made a way for us to stand before the just God, the just God who should be killing us because of our unrighteousness and of our sin. But instead, you show us mercy and grace. You are so good to us through Jesus Christ. You're so good to us. So I pray that as we look at these things that may not even mention the name Jesus, we know that it points to him ultimately. We know that it points to our need for him. So that I pray, I pray that we would be aware of this. I pray that we'd be aware of our shortcomings. But more than that, that we'd be aware of the goodness, the grace, the love, the justice of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he has made it a way for us to stand before you. So God, we worship you. Make this uh, something that we think about and that we care about for your glory, for your name's sake. Amen.